What's going on, everyone? You're tuned in to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And today on the show, we sit down with Anthony Katz. Anthony is the founder of HyperIce, the world leader in sports recovery and movement enhancement technology, utilizing ice, heat, percussion, and vibration. They're the official recovery technology partner of the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, USA Volleyball, USA Soccer, and much, much more. We spoke with Anthony all about his childhood, how his passion for history has helped him be a better entrepreneur and visionary, what inspired him to start HyperIce, his unique relationship with the late great Kobe Bryant, his thoughts on innovation and competition, what the future of the company looks like, and much more. Here we go. Yeah, so uh, guys, thanks for having me. First of all, um, my name is Anthony Katz. I'm the founder of HyperIce. I grew up in Southern California. I'm a total product of the state of California. I grew up in a sort of a middle-class family in a beach town in South Orange County. Um, still live in Laguna Beach to this day. Um, you know, I think really, you know, growing up as a kid in the 19, in the 1980s and a teenager, teenager in the 90s, um, you know, it was, you know, I, I think you're shaped by where you grew up, but also by when you grew up too. Um, you know, growing up at a time where um, sort of, you know, I love sports. I love being outside growing up somewhere where it was sunny out all the time and you can get outside and whether it was getting in the water, I grew up in the sort of the, the Mecca of like the surf skate culture, but also was an athlete. So I was really in tune with, uh, with, you know, sports culture as well. Um, and just always had a passion for sports and being competitive. And, um, I always start every, whenever I introduce myself, I say I'm a failed professional athlete. Like that was, <laughs> If I was better at if I was a better basketball player, I never would have started high price. I, I I always say that what I have in common with every every other male in the country that's not a professional athlete, we're all you're either a failed professional athlete or a successful one, and then you have to pick yeah. something else because at one point we all love to play something. Um, but you know, I think growing up at a time where um, I think it was a really good time to be young. You know, um, I think on like from like a macro perspective, like you know, growing up is you know, during as a kid and the cold war and the cold war ended and the Olympics were in the United States, you know, they were in LA when I was seven and they were in Atlanta when I was 19. And it was pretty cool to like have, you know, to be a, when you're really into sports, have the Olympics twice in your life, in your childhood. Um, and I really had no interest in business. I was sort of, I, I didn't ever plan on having my own business. I think back then, you know, growing up before the internet, when you were a business owner, that meant that you like owned a physical like brick and mortar business. Right. And so, um, definitely grew up, I think really kind of the first kind of time I ever heard about a tech entrepreneur was like when, when Sean Parker created Napster and I was like, Whoa, some guy out of his dorm room, like became a millionaire by just creating a by creating an MP3. And I remember the first time going on Napster and kind of blowing your mind. Um, but I grew up, um, just passion in school. I was really into history and I, I, I went to college at uh, Hawaii Pacific and was a history and poli sci major and, and decided to go into teaching. Um, and then I was teaching at Laguna beach high and, um, coaching basketball cause I still wanted to stay in touch with the game. And, um, you know, I grew up in the age I would say of, you know, when it comes to business, when it, like I was very much shaped by sort of three kind of like major brands, I would say. And one was Nike because I was into sports and they just kind of showed up in the biggest moments and were the most culturally relevant brand. I love the shoes. My, the age of Michael Jordan, my favorite tennis player was Andre Agassi. I loved Bo Jackson. Like it was just like, they kind of, they got it right in like every big moment and like the partnership they had with Wyden Kennedy and, you know, using the way they tied in sports culture and music and, um, 
and, and Anthony, just, just to just to kind of take it back a bit, yeah. Um, you know, you talk about you know this love for basketball. I mean, how, you know, as a young kid, were you exposed to folks in whether it was your family or friends? I mean, did you have like a consistent group of people, or were you part of a team and played basketball? I mean, how big of an impact did it have in your life early on as a kid? So, you know, I grew up in the time where you didn't specialize in sports where like when we were young, um, I grew up at the park down the street and we played whatever what season was in. So like it was basketball season, we'd play basketball and play basketball on the courts until it got dark. Um, we play football, you know, like, you know, you don't see too many people playing tackle football, but we played just tackle football, with no pads, you know, on the grass until that was in the fall. And then spring came around, we played baseball. And, um, and so I, we, I played all three sports kind of growing up. And then got to high school and, and picked basketball and baseball. Um, growing up in Southern California in the 80s, you were fortunate enough to watch, to be, we, I mean, you were a Laker fan. I mean, we had Magic Johnson during the time, during, you know, they won five titles in the 80s. I, I could remember about three of them because I was too young for the ones really, really early. But, you know, he was like my, my sports hero essentially at that time. And, um, yeah, like when you went on the court, that's who you wanted to play like. And so, um I was a freshman in high school when, you know, he announced he was retiring because he contracted HIV. And that was like a really, it's like one of those moments you always know where you remember where you were. Um, but continue to play through high school. And then after high school, I did not, I wasn't good enough to play, you know, in, in, in college and not focused enough. Even if I was good enough, I was more, but I still love the game and still continue to play. And so I still play all the way, never stop. I still play two days a week, at least one day a week. Um, I ended up marrying um, my wife played at UCLA and then played professionally. So kind of growing up around the game and just always having a love for the game and the culture that surrounded it. And to this day, it's a big part of my life. And it's my, it's like sort of my physical and mental release that I get to do twice a week. You know, it's something that probably a lot of people deal with that, you know, when they're younger, they might have this like really intense passion for sports. Like it could be any sport. And then as soon as like you kind of get older and you realize, oh shit, like I've been so focused on this thing and maybe you're really good amongst your peers, but there isn't like a path to necessarily going pro and making it like your full-time career. And throughout it all, you maybe like weren't even thinking about any other op option as far as a career could go. Was that the case for you? And if it was like, was there anything, I know you said yeah, you weren't necessarily exposed to business or entrepreneurship or anything like that. Like, was there anything you could see yourself doing that, you know, besides, I know you, you said you went into teaching, but was that, did you kind of like fall into that? Or was that something that you always had, you know, uh, kind of in the back of your head? Like I could do this if sports don't, doesn't work out. I mean, I think I've always had the balance between being able to like think big, but also be very grounded in reality. And just the reality was that like, um, there's just not a lot of guys in my profile that are in the NBA. And I think that was realized like at a pretty young age, like, Hey, I just love playing this and I love competing. And if I could play, you know, if, if this could be a vehicle to like, you know, play through high school and, and maybe, maybe play in college, like that would have been that that was sort of as far as I had taken it. But um, it was never really about making a career out of it. It was just sort of every kid dreams to be a pro athlete, like at, at some level, or I guess, you know, a musician or whatever, you know, whatever you love. Right. Um, so it was never something that like, I was really like invested in as like thought it was going to be like my, my livelihood. It was just something I knew I loved to do, and I got a lot of satisfaction about not not only like competing. I just love going out and physically competing, but also the relationships that come with it. Like to this day, like my 
most of my best friends are guys that I met through playing sports with. And so, um, so it, it was never really, and, and then when it came to teaching, it was like, I like being around young people and, and sort of coaching basketball was sort of a way for me to stay in touch with the game um, and still be around basketball. And, you know, that, and, and I really, and then I still got to compete because you know now you're taking it from a different side of it, the mental side. Um, and, you know, I remember reading sacred hoops, which is Phil Jackson's first book and really being inspired by that when I, my first year of coaching. And, um, so yeah, it was sort of like, Hey, this is a good life. Like, you know, beautiful school. And I loved history and seeing, you know, being able to like be around young people and kind of keeps you young. And, and then the basketball side of it was just like, Hey, being, you know, get, get in the gym every day and playing. And that's kind of what I thought I was going to do. Why'd you choose the majors that you did in college? I mean, was there um, a vision for what that would turn into? I think just I just, just the timing of when I was born. Like, I think I was born at a very interesting time. Like, I'm born as a kid, and it's the Cold War, and like you know, you're living under this sort of sort of fear of like, okay, like what could happen, and and I think that it's hard to for a young person to relate to that didn't grow up during that time, and then. All of a sudden, you know, the Berlin Wall comes down and then about a year later, communism falls. And it's like, you know, there was this belief that like, you know, you were witnessing like, you know, that the world was going to be a better place. And that's why I always describe like the 1990s, like that. So I was a teenager and I was 13 in 1990. So like my whole teen years in my early 20s were in the 90s. And that was such like they call it like the peacetime dividend. Like you saw a lot of prosperity. That was the strongest growth we've had in this country for the middle class in a long time. It was the, um, you know, sort of the beginning of the tech boom. Um, and you know, there was, it it was sort of happy days. I mean, it was a really great time to be young. And, and then when I was in college and then September 11, 2001, that really kind of made me understand like, well, the world just changed and it's way more complex than I thought it was. And I think I always have this drive to understand things. And I'm like, I want to really understand this and like understand the times we're living in. How did we get here? Where, what does this mean? Where we're going? And that happened like, you know, one of my, this is like my first or second year that I was into my major. And so I was, it's funny the night of September 11th, my Tuesday night class, it was going to be my first class of a class called the politics of terrorism. And it was the only (laughs) class I attended that day because once, you know, it happened, I was in Hawaii. So it happened in the middle of the night. So when I woke up, it was already, kind of everything was already kind of unfolded but it was um it was just it it was such a you felt like it was a big moment in history and there was no other major i'd want to be in you know i'm curious it's funny because you know you being like a history major i can see like the way you kind of uh see like life like you're kind of you're you're kind of relating it to certain events that happened in the past and like your timeline is is very historic like you have a very historical you know good sense of like that timeline and and you said like a lot of young people might not realize it but I, I would bet that even people that are you know around your age or older even might not even see things that way because you clearly have this interest in that and so I'm curious with you like when it comes to your interest in history how has that played a role um, with you being like a visionary and entrepreneur and, and and I guess the question also is like how much of history do you think uh, dictates what's coming in the future uh, to your yeah. inner- it's a great question. And I think about this all the time. I always think that, that my interest and passion for history and then my education in history and political science prepared me more for entrepreneurship 
than if I studied business and entrepreneurship. Because I didn't come into business with any like preconceived set of ideas. I was a little naive, which has its, you know, there's positive and negative to that. Um, but historians tend to think in really through see the world through a very broad lens, right? And if you want to like kind of see what like if you want to see like kind of and predict where the world's going to go, you have to understand what come bef- what's come before that, right? Um, I think in this culture now, everyone lives in these like snapshot moments and doesn't really kind of look through the broad lens. And I think people that see things that in, in a, from a more historical perspective kind of look at things that way. And so when I got introduced to the industry, so like I really, when I started high price, I was just really focused on one thing. I was making my own knee icers because I was getting a little bit older and getting a little bit sore. And I started to read, what do professional athletes do to, you know, to for recovery? And there was no recovery industry. Right. So all guys did back then was ice joint. So I made my own knee icers and that was like, sort of, I was like an art project. Right. Um, and then I kind of fell into entrepreneurship because, um, I, my friend was training Kobe Bryant at UC Irvine where I, where I would play pickup. And he said, Hey, I want, he's like, can you make them for Kobe? Because he ices all the time and I want to show him that that's better than a plastic bag. And so I was able to get introduced to Kobe. I, I made him a pair that I was using and we, and then he gave me a ton of feedback and, saying, Hey, you got to make it like this. And it just, just exactly how he was with his Nike shoe. And now, and then he, and then, you know, at the first time he met, he said, Hey, I like your idea about like having something I could wear all the time, as opposed to like filling up a plastic bag and throwing it away every time. Um, he's like, but you got to get, you have to make all these changes. And he goes, if you can make it better than what I use now, in his words, he said, I'll wear that shit on the bench. <laughs> and so meaning that in the fourth quarter of a blowout, if he's not going back in, he would start icing right there on the court. And I'm like, wow, if I could ever have that moment, like my little art project could actually turn into a business. And around what years is this like for context? This is, is, uh, I met him in August of 09, but it took me, you know, uh, over a year to develop the product. So like the meeting was in August of 09. And And we still won the championship that next year. So yeah, exactly. And then then I would like to think it had something to do with that. But I didn't, he didn't have the, he didn't really get the product until really 2000 um, until after they won the title in 10. Um, so it was sort of like he threw down the gauntlet, like, Hey, if you can make something that's better, I like this idea. And that's how I was able to mobilize a guy with no business experience, walking into a manufacturing company saying, Hey, I'm communicating with Kobe Bryant and I made him these, a pair of these prototypes but I have a long way to go. I have to put this and I had this idea for an air valve and that would be like the tech of making a, a, a an airless system to, to ice your knees with. And, um, and so that mobilized these people to like put enough money and time and energy into developing the product. And that's, that's why the company's called high price because my favorite basketball shoe ever is the 2008 Hyperdunk, which he popularized. And Hyperdunk was basically the updated version of the Nike Dunk, which is something old. And so I said, well, if icing is something that's old, I want to, it's like the, the Hyperdunk was the advanced version of an old shoe. So this is going to be Hyper Ice. And so that's where the name comes from. It's sort of the, sort of an ode to like the product feedback that Kobe Bryant gave me that I put into the product, which was, um, you know, forever. So sort of like his kind of like that, that story awesome. kind of like is yeah. like embedded into the DNA. And so, um, yeah, they're, they're, so, but from a historical perspective is that that product just got me in the game. So like now I, instead of selling them, I just was doing small production runs and I was, it was during, so then the next year was the NBA lockout. So guys were locked out. So 
I was just like going and meeting players wherever I could in gyms and around LA and like getting them to ice their knees with. And my number started getting passed around like, Hey, there's this guy who like, just like has these really cool knee icers that like are way better than what we're using now. And so I was creating this kind of groundswell. And so when the lockout ended, guys were saying, Hey, come show my trainer. So I was going, I was getting invited to all these like NBA training rooms. And where, and, and this is where my, the sort of the historical thing comes into play is like, I looked at the, I looked in the training room. I was like, wow, not a lot of people get to go in here because media can't go in. It's very guarded. And I'm looking around at all the technology and I'm like, this is like old medical device companies making devices that the athletes are like repurposing for like, you know, Hey, they're taking a post-surgical device and using it for recovery. Or they're using like this vibration platform. That's kind of for something else. And it was like, there was no brand that was like speaking to the athlete. It was just like, Hey, we're going to make this technology. That's pretty outdated. And it comes in these really big footprints, like thousands of dollars. It's plugged into the wall and the trainer need to administer it. And I kind of equate it to like, what was the computer industry in like the late seventies, early eighties, like for IBM, IBM. But was we like, were like, like well into like, and sorry to cut you off here, but like yeah. we were well into like tech, right? At this point. Yeah. I mean, this is like, this is like late 2000. <clears throat> Sorry, early 2010s, late 2000s. Yeah, like, like uh, probably I started going to training rooms probably 10, 11. Yeah, and so... Th- so like, why do you think it didn't th- exist at the time, right? Because like in your mind, you're, you're looking at these things and saying like, oh shit, these are old. Like perhaps there's an opportunity here. But like you being someone that didn't have that experience necessarily as an yeah. entrepreneur or you know someone who created like hardware and tech products and all these things, like what made you think that, oh wow, I could, I could create a business out of this? So the first product, again, was just an art project that like got me in. It was just the key to get me in the door. But once I was in the door, I saw this outdated industry of like, I said, this is like IBM in the late 70s, early 80s, where like the computer was like the mainframe at the office or at work. And like you needed someone to like show you how to do it. It wasn't personal. And then someone named Steve Jobs came along and said, I want to put a friendly machine in your house that that is very human and you could touch it and experience it. And it's a totally different experience. And so, you know, as you know, and then when he comes back to Apple and does the, the bubble Mac and the iPod and the first iPod, Jobs took technology and, and, and humanized it. It was technology serving the human and he put it in our hands. He made it portable. He made it our own. And I feel like the sportsman industry was like totally dated and it was like big machines had to be, you know, the, the player was so reliant on going into the training room, having the trainer use it on them. And like, I wanted to say like, there's an opportunity to like, to, to like, to Appleize this which is to take all these things, shrink them, put them into like products that are intuitive, easy to use, and that actually serve the athlete. Because no one was really communicating with the athlete. It was sort of, there was a disconnect. And so I had created relationships based on like the fact that I, I always say I'm, I'm a relationship center person, not a transactional person. So like all the high price that I was giving out, they weren't transactions. I was just like, here, I've created this thing. I want you to use it and I want, and I, I want that to create like sort of the buzz um, and go top down, get it to influential. And, and, and that, that, you know, it's sort of been replicated a lot of times since I wasn't the first to do it. I'm certainly not the last, but um, I think Anthony, that when did, you know, when, sorry, when did hyper ice as a company begin? I mean, cause I don't think it sounds like you set out to start a company. You set out to just kind of create this product. Yeah, and it almost feels as though, from my understanding or from my just knowledge in the last twenty minutes, that it kind of just became one. So, kind of walk us through that mindset of how you know you went from product to okay, maybe this is 
what I'm going to be doing. Yeah. So when it was just my own, like I was literally driving to wetsuit factories, buying scrap neoprene, cutting them into wraps, using medical ice packs. That it wasn't a company then. It was me and my art project, right? And then once I made sort of, you know, still when it was an art project, made it making some, you know, knee icers for Kobe Bryant. It was still in that phase. And then once he gave me the direction of like, he gave me like four or five things that how the product could be better. And then I had one idea, the big idea, which was because he's like, you got to figure out a way to get the air out of it. And then that's when I came up with the idea for the air release button, which is the one technology feature on the, on the product. Um, I was like, okay, like I need like, I, this is beyond my capacity. Like I'm not a product developer. This is like, I need to learn and I need to go and, and work with experts on how to, you know, develop a product. And so when, when that time came, it was like, okay, well, if we're all going to do this and collaborate on it, we need to like kind of form a company. And it really kind of started as almost like an R&D project. But we had kind of formed the, the sort of the skeleton of a company. Like, oh, here's the people putting some money into it. It was like basically I partnered with a manufacturing company called Marton Precision here in Orange County that did mostly like aerospace stuff. Like it was totally not in their, in their wheelhouse, but they just took a flyer on it. Um, and probably just because they wanted to get rid of me and they thought it wasn't going to go anywhere, honestly. Um, and then we kind of formed the skeleton of a company, but then once we had like the real prototypes and it worked and I was giving it to players and players were like, Hey, can I like, are you raising money? Can I invest in this? Then it was like, okay, well, we got to start a real company. So it's sort of, um, you know, once we kind of put some real money into it, it it became like, okay, our R and D company. And then once the product came out good enough to, we know like, Hey, this thing is going to actually, we can commercialize this. Then that's when we formed the company really kind of around 2011. And so at the time, it sounds like you just had that one product was was like for the knee knee icing. Yeah. Like, did you at at what point do you start thinking of other products? And at what point do you start thinking we well, got to make this D to C as opposed to just you know giving it to like a, a professional athletes and and so like anyone can really buy this product and use it for recovery. Yeah. Well, we so obviously I wanted to you know we needed a vehicle to sell products, so we launched the website in 2012. This was really before like this is just in the infancy of Instagram where like if Instagram starts 2010, I believe it's really a platform for people to post their own photos and sort of this artistic expression of photography about their life <clears throat> and was not really commercialized yet. And then, you know, I think consumer brands start adopting Instagram as a platform probably around 2012. Um, you know, we launched our website right around that time. Back then it was Facebook was a dominant platform for like running ads and, you know, sort of brands were having brands were having face putting more time into Facebook. And then, you know, that started to open up this whole new era of the direct to consumer brand where you started to see these, you know, really smart entrepreneurs saying, Hey, this is a single channel that we could build a whole brand around. We could advertise our products. It's free. Um, we're not doing print. We're not going to do, um, you know, uh, we're, we're not going to do television. And there's a, it opened up this whole new category of what we call performance marketing, which is the ability to like get in front of consumers that want to buy your products using data and analytics. And so we were pretty, I'd say, late to that. We weren't like, look, I had never run a business where this is where like the lack of experience where I was like, hey, I was looking at the more traditional ways of like, we're going to sell this to every professional sports team and college team in the country. And then we're going to sell it online. And then maybe eventually we get into retail. And that's kind of like how I thought about it. Um and then you you start to see how like you know it's it's challenging to just um, to drive a lot of direct business. You need to figure out better ways to use these platforms as instruments to reach more customers. And then it was just sort of like we were learning like everyone else. Like I think from 
2012 through 2014, we like slowly, slowly got better at it. Um, and then the second product that we launched, um, so I was going around to training rooms and I kept seeing everyone foam roll. And then I kept see- seeing vibration platforms and I was like, there's clearly something about vibration and there's something about foam roll. And so, so, you know, I had the idea for the vibrating foam roller back in 2012 and it took us two years to develop and we launched a product called the Viper and we actually launched it on Kickstarter because we just used the platform. Cause I was like, wow, this was the summer of 2014 where Kickstarter was like the first real big summer of it. And that just got a great exposure. And in that year, we went from about a million dollar business doing our ice compression line to about a $5 million business just in one year because of uh, the second product and the second product. Yeah. Sorry. Before we kind of go on about uh, hyper ice, I want to kind of hone in a little bit about you, right. And sure. uh, You know, your experience or lack thereof. Yeah. Um, You know, there's a lot of first time founders, obviously that have found massive success, um and second time founders third time founders right there's really no like rhyme or reason to this stuff but where were you learning you know or did you have mentors or were you reading books or articles or youtube i mean like how did you figure this out early on well i i always consider myself a forever student and like i'm a student of a lot of things beyond just like you know when i'm in conversation with people i i I don't even talk about my work a lot. I'm interested in a lot of other things. Um, So I think one of the things about like going back to my education, when you're like, you know, in in history or political science, you're constantly, you know, it it really engages your critical thinking facilities. And um, so you're constantly asking questions and challenging and, and being critical of stuff. And so I feel that like, just when you learn how to learn, you can kind of learn anything. Right. And so, um, I was learning a lot through experience, really like, just like, look, taking your lumps and in some days and some days you figure out some things. Um, I, I think a lot of it was, um, through people. I like the relationship side. I go back to like, I was a relationship center person. So when I would go meet the trainer for, you know, like, like, you know, I remember going to the Phoenix Suns training room, which they were like one of the most highly respected training staffs in the league. And the guy who kind of said a lot of those, um, you know, he was, he had, was a consultant at the time, but he, he had kind of said a lot of those, their um, sort of practices in motion years before was a guy named Dr. Mike Clark and like, you know, developing a relationship with him so that at any point I could say, Hey Mike, I got a, I got a question. Like I'm developing this product um, that's going to incorporate vibration therapy. What are the Hertz levels that I need to be at? Like being able to go and, and, and use sort of some of the best people in the industry as resources to me was, you know, I was able to go and, and forge some really strong relationships with people that I think were very influential in sort of the industry. And I always just try to be non-transactional about it, where it was like, hey, I'm just trying to make something better. And, you know, people in the profession are always trying to, we're all, we're all trying to like, the, the goal is to have every athlete be healthy for every game they ever play, right? So, you know, if, if a sports scientist, you know, if I went to the sports scientist saying, hey, I want your input because I want to put it, you know, into a product. Um, they were always willing to give that. And so I, I think I was really, I learned from people as much as anything. Um, but books occasionally, but I didn't read too many business books. It was sort of, I felt the business I was in, it wasn't an apparel company. It wasn't a shoe, it wasn't a shoe company. It wasn't a beverage company. I was kind of having to like, I was trying to create a, a category. There wasn't a lot of track record there of like, 
I was trying to create the Nike of recovery of sports med and trying to change the whole term so sports med doesn't even exist anymore. And when you're doing that, there's not a lot to fall back on. There's probably, I probably should have learned more about some sound fundamentals of business, but I really kind of focused more on the creative side and and like sort of the, um, you know, when it came to like, not only was I doing the products, but I was also doing all the creative direction for the brand, like the content and, and the, you know, know, art directing photography and the motion pieces and stuff. So um, there was just not enough hours in the day to learn everything. So I just try to put good people around myself to learn from. And so, I learned how to create content from having to be really receptive and, and sort of like a sponge whenever I was on set, uh, when it was product development, like, you know, I always joke that I have like a sort of a pseudo engineering degree cause I'm very deep into the product development side. So, um, really learning from people, I would say is the biggest thing learning firsthand. You know, to your point on trying to create a category that didn't exist, anyone who's like doing anything innovative, it's almost like you could learn all you want, but there isn't like some sort of blueprint or story or something that's going to like allow you to, or or give you like all the answers. you kind of just have to like seek out that truth by doing it. And so in your case, can you share an example? Um, Cause you kind of talked about having this naivete. You talk about going to this manufacturer who was like in aerospace, wasn't even, you know, in the kind of industry. Like, can you share an example of a situation where early on you wanted to build something you had this vision of something but for whatever reason like there were these limitations or something that you like is there was that was there ever like a challenge like that yeah absolutely uh, that you had to overcome yeah yeah so like so i remember when you know i i i kind of had this idea that i wanted to do something around vibration and then i kept hearing soft tissue right like whenever i got into the training rooms the first time i wasn't going in to sell my product i was going in there for information like, hey, what's the next thing? I'd ask every trainer, like, what tool do you wish you had or whatever? I, I'd ask questions like that. And they would say, well, everything's all about soft tissue now. We're really getting into like the, you know, soft tissue is becoming sort of the dominant thing that athletes are trying to take care of. And so we're hiring more massage therapists. We're, you know, and, and, and being able to like kind of prep the tissue. And so foam rollers were like kind of just commodity, right? There are just like 20 of them in every training room. And then you started to see vibration being influenced, uh, implemented, whether it was through different applications, through platforms, or there was something, you know, what they used to call the vibrating hammer, which is the DMS, which I'll get to later. Um, and I said, well, look, it seems like foam rollers are everywhere. And if we could just put the power of this, these like floor devices, these plates into that, I think we'd have something because then you could inject the vibration right into the tissue. And so when I wanted to make a vibrating foam roller, there was nothing, didn't exist, right? So how do I get enough power that is powered by a wall socket into this little space because you only have a little bit of real estate. And so foam by nature absorbs vibration. And I didn't want that. I wanted something to transfer vibration. So we had the first prototype we made was all metal and it was just heavy and loud and just terrible. And I was over in Germany. And so we kind of hit a dead end. Like I was trying to develop the vibrating foam. I remember I kind of hit a dead end in 2013 where I was like, it's just going to be like I, it, the first one I made was like so heavy. I brought it to the Clippers and they were like, yeah, this is, and we didn't even know how to power it. I had like an external battery and it was just, it was just a monstrosity. It was just a, it wasn't, it was barely passable as a proof of concept. And then I went to Germany for a trade show and I just, there's these guys there that had these super lightweight rollers that were almost like feathery light, but super strong. And it was this material that they use in German manufacturing for the inside of that the, they line the doors of cars. So that there's so you so whenever you're in an Audi, Mercedes, or BMW, when you close the door, you have that really nice like sound of like where it's the, there's no there's no air, it kills all the harmonics. 
And so they made this aesthetic version of these like foam rollers that um, were really interesting. And they had a hot, they, they were hollow in the middle. And so I, I took, I, I bought one and I took one back home. And I remember saying like, Hey, could we shrink down the vibration components into this little hole? So I, I got these hobbyists to help me. Um, they were, had some experience making really small vibrating stuff. Um, we, they came up with a PVC pipe that fit the hole, put the motor, it was just duct tape and just really crude and transistor resistors was not, not very safe. And we stuffed this PVC pipe into a, into this, this German foam roller. And it, it felt exactly how I wanted it to feel because the vibration was not being absorbed by the foam. It was going right through the foam because the foam was totally different material. And I remember the first time using it going, wow, I got up after I'm like, wow, my body feels totally different. Like we're, and, and so we had toyed with, you know, we, we, we found a, a motor company. They sent us four different motors, four different weight sizes. And then I remember in the summer of 13, I was going around with a box of basically four vibrating foam rollers that had different motor and weight combinations. I took it to the Lakers. I took it to the Clippers. I took it to the USA volleyball gym. And I said, here, have your players roll on these and tell me which one gets the most positive feedback. And everyone was like this gray one right here. That was like that. And it had the, it had the biggest weight. So it had the biggest mass, the biggest mass meant it had, it had more, it had like more punch. And so we were able to kind of work backwards from that. And the development of that product, it's always easier when you go to manufacturers saying, Hey, I want to make a, you know, fill in the blank, something that's already been done before. They kind of know how to do it. But we were like literally making something that didn't exist. So, Hey, how do we make it? So it works. How do we make it? So it's safe because you're like the last thing you like, I wanted like violent, like vibration and like electronics are not designed for that. So how do we make it safe? How do we make it strong enough? So you're trying to please like the athlete and give them what they want, but you're also trying to be safe because you don't want to like, you know, you don't think to blow up. And so the challenges really became of like, how do we get this product to market? And so we were able to, with our manufacturing partner, it takes a village with my engineer, myself, the Germans, like it was this full team effort to like bring the Viper to market in 2014. And it's still like, to me, one of the most exciting times in the history of high price, because it was something new and different that no one had ever seen before. And um, yeah, and the the product caught fire and, and we were like in every athletic training room within a year. Are those things that, from a business standpoint, like you're able to, um, uh, what do you call it, patent? Like in terms of the design, because I see this all the time with different industries. Like there's this like initial pioneer, innovator person company comes in, creates something, and then all of a sudden, you know, you see a lot of like knockoffs and me too's, and they just kind of take take it. So, so I'm just curious, like yeah. from that standpoint, was that was that something you guys were able to do, and did that help you at all as a business? Yeah, U.S. patent law is pretty outdated. And then the issue with international patent law is that a lot of products are made in China. So they're manufactured or assembled in China. So now you're subject to, to, to their laws, which are always going to basically, they, they don't care about infringement over there. So like if, the manu- if you have a Chinese manufacturer that is um, ripping off an idea, good luck trying to go and get a law firm and sue them in their own country and win. So then it really becomes like, okay, so don't let them sell in the US. Well, Amazon is a huge sort of enabler of basically knockoff or patent infringed products because Amazon throws their hands up and says, hey, we're just the marketplace. So um, when we came out with the Viper, there were knockoffs for sure. But one of the things that we had a really clear patent on in the US was the way that we made the vibration strong. 
So a lot of the rollers that were coming out never caught on because they just weren't strong. They were, the vibration was really weak because we had the way we designed our, um, our vibration mechanism was really innovative. And to this day, we actually enforced the patent this year in one. Um, so that's a case of the patent holding here. Um, I would say in other areas like our percussion device, yeah, it's been knocked off hundreds of times and it's just, it's like playing whack-a-mole. You know, you, you have a design, you come out, you introduce an idea to the world and you know, it gets ripped off. But I, I definitely think that like, uh, you know, not to just like lay it all on Amazon, but like without that platform, like if you think about what Amazon, they say they're a marketplace. Well, they're a digital marketplace, right? So if you were, if you're going to build a mall and I was going to have a marketplace, right. And I had, and I opened a store that was selling all knockoff counterfeit Nikes. Like someone would come in and shut me down. Hey, you don't, these are not real. You're not allowed to sell these. The Nike corporation can cease and desist you. Um, but for some reason, when you do that in the internet, it's just like, oh, well, like it's, it's just on the internet. So it's fine. And, you know, get in line with the other thousand brands that are trying to get stuff taken down. Um, so it becomes a real challenge that when you put an idea out into the world, the world, you know, a benefit of globalization is everything's so connected, right? You can consumers see it instantly. The downside is that, you know, people will come in and, and, and like knock it off and undercut you and, um, and you see that like you could go online right now and find knockoff AirPods, right? You could find knockoff beats, you could find knockoff almost anything. And it's just super hard to police even for the big companies. So it's sort of a reality that we deal with. And I think that I think as a big picture initiative for the country, I think we need to protect intellectual property better. And I think Amazon could be the biggest leader in being part of the solution there. But their business model is they're paid on the volume of transactions and it makes it it makes it hard because it's I, I think in the short term it would not be good for their business because they'd lose a lot of transactions if you made every brand on there be legitimate. But in the long term I think you'd have more brands have more confidence in the platform and you'd see brands like Nike and Apple being willing to participate more. The reason why they don't is because they don't protect protect intellectual property. Yeah. You talk about you talk about initially like wanting to kind of Apple-ize or Apple fi I don't know what you said, but yeah. like try to make this kind of like an Apple style, yeah. you know, uh business, if you will. And is that is that what the vision is? Like you have all these products, you're gonna come out with new kind of iterations of them every year, but then yeah. also you have different product lines um surrounding like recovery. Like is that kind of where you see the company headed? Yeah, I mean absolutely. I, I feel like if you think about Apple, it's like you know, like right now we're doing this on my Mac laptop and that's like my hub. Right. And then like my iPhone is like the product I take everywhere. And then my AirPods are my like situational product. And then, you know, I have Apple TV. I mean, then I have the services it's sort of like for your, for the human body. It's like, we make a product called the Norma tech. Like that's like your hub. Like that's like what you do every night you plug in and you know, it's it like, we're, we're a big system of fluid and that's basically like our fluid flush system that we have that we do every day. And then the hypervolts like our iPhone. You take it everywhere. You should people should use it every day. It's like a toothbrush for the body. Um, I'm trying to draw the parallels to Apple here. And so, um, and then you might have our like thermal products that are more situational, like your AirPods. You, you you use it when you need it situationally. And you know, Steve Jobs always said, "I want all of our products to fit on a conference table." He didn't want to make a million products. Like he like the products that are so good that they simplify your life. So you shouldn't need a hundred of them, right? So I kind of feel like for us. You know, we have these different product categories, um, you know, our thermal our thermal line with the Venom and then now the Hyperice X and then our vibration line, which is really more sport performance. So um, and then the addition of when we acquired Core, which is a sort of a mental wellness tool. 
Um, I think that, yes, you know, ba- basically having a product that will fit every need that the human body can have. And so yeah. that's, that, and so like the other brand I would say that we are highly influenced by is Dyson because there's a difference between inventing something and then reinventing something. So like whether it's a hairdryer or a vacuum cleaner, Dyson didn't invent those two, but they reinvented those two and they'll never be the same. They found a better way to do something that had been done for a hundred years. And that to me is, uh, you know, they're one of the most innovative and forward thinking brands in the world. I think one thing I'm curious about is, you know, there's obviously when, when something's done right and something's done well and people see success, you automatically, you know, sure there's the one thing, the knockoffs, but then at the same time, you also see legitimate competition from folks that are also, you know, doing this stuff or are in this space, in this industry. How has it been as a founder dealing with that sort of competition um, or does it just not bother you? Something to piggyback off of that too is, is an interesting phenomenon because I, I remember reading about it where it's like a lot of a lot of innovative things that have come out, you know, like a lot of companies kind of, it's just like they do it at, around the same time and whatever kind of external sort of forces that led to that happening. It's just like a time in, in, in history that, you know, it's kind of like a natural progression, if you will. So yeah. from that standpoint, like it's kind of almost inevitable, like to Pasha's point, like if something's working, like there's going to be more and more players in this yeah, space. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So even on top of that, um, like how, how do you kind of maintain those competition dynamics? Yeah. I mean, I look at competition as like, I mean, I wouldn't want to be in a world without it. I mean, I think it competition sharpens your knife. It it gives you something to kind of like measure yourself against. Like, I think that competition is part of capitalism and I totally embrace it and wouldn't want to be, you know, I, I think that our, uh, we looked at this space very differently pretty early on. I think Norma Tech, who we, are, we acquired in 2020, was sort of the other company on the East. It was like us on the West Coast, them on the East Coast. They kind of came out of the medical device world, kind of the older world I described of like really expensive device, not super sexy. The old ones are pretty kind of pretty kind of funny to look at now. And then, um, you know, the son of the founder basically said, hey, let's put this on an athlete and see what it does on a totally healthy body. And, you know, then the product got sleeker and a little bit more like, you know, more in the lines of the products that we see today and, and, and sort of, we're continuing that and sort of making them more Apple. Um, but we were like kind of the first two brands that really were, I think, thinking about recovery every day and trying to like, you know, I think the difference between our two brands was they had one product that they were just constantly iterating and perfecting and where we were like kind of trying to make the next one and the next one. And, you know, our, you know, the Hyperbole ended up being our biggest one, which is our fifth product. And so, um, but then along the way came competition. And like, now there's honestly brands out there that like you look, and their whole product line is like knockoff high price products. And so um, I would say that like we do have legitimate competitors out there that like are like bringing innovation to the table and that are thinking about this in a, in a productive way. And I think that this, it just further legitimizes the space. Like the big picture of this space is that we're living in the age of technology and we could use technology to improve the way our bodies feel, improve the way our bodies move the way we perform and that's a really big idea that got introduced to the world and so there's room for more than one company there we always want to attract the most talent so that we could do it better than everybody but um you know knowing that there's 
a lot of talented people out there and and there's money flowing in from investment community into this sector that I think is going to just kind of lift all the boats and sort of um, bring everyone's game up to speed. And, and I think that as much as we were early, just being first doesn't mean anything anymore. You have to be first, but you you don't have to be first. You just kind of constantly have to be um, staying one step ahead of the game. And, and so as far as competition, I welcome it. And I, I never take it personal. It's just that there's other people trying to put good things out in the world. And um, we're just trying to do the best that we can here with the, the talent we have in the building. Anthony, one thing I'm curious about, and I know you keep drawing parallels to Apple, is that, you know, let's take their, you know, main product, right? Their mm-hmm. cornerstone just product, the iPhone. Uh, there's obviously been, what, 10, 11, 12 different versions of it at this point. I've lost yeah. track. 13. Um, <laughs> but one thing that they do is that beyond just the hardware, they have obviously software that can be updated even if you don't get the new shiny right. phone. Right. With, you know, products like Hypervolt, whether it's a foam roller, whether it's the hyper, excuse me, like for Hyperice, whether it's the foam roller, the Hypervolt or anything else, you know, it is mainly hardware. Do you see there being a day um, where I don't have to buy the new Hypervolt to get the newest Hypervolt technology in my existing hardware? Right. That makes any sense. Yeah, I think that that is in the newest Hypervolt now. There's um, in the hardware, there's over the air updates available through firmware updates that we could push through the app. So we could put a new feature in the product um, just over the air. So you can just basically go on the Hyperice app and it'll update your device. That, that mm-hmm. capability is in the current device. It's actually yep. in the 2020 device as well. Um, yep. So yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, I. Again, and, and let me be clear that when I compare us to Apple, I'm not in any way comparing us to the greatest, you know, Apple's not only the greatest company of all time, I think it's it's just the most complex human organized project in the world. I mean, to make hundreds of millions of products a year at the spec and, you know, quality that they do is just, it's just a sort of a, like I went to the Apple spaceship a couple of weeks ago, um, the, the, the headquarters and like, just being there, you're like, if they, you know, if another species came down here a thousand years from now and said, at the twenty, at the, be, at the beginning of the twenty first century, this was the most advanced humans on the planet. They're they're in this building. You know, it's pretty incredible. Um, right. the, the, you know, and so you think about like what that company is able to do every year, which is like iterate on the most advanced technology constantly, um, and the talent that in the coordination and the collaboration um, amongst design, engineering, manufacturing, logistics, all that stuff that goes into that. I mean, it just blows away what any government could do or any, you know, any body of humans like this just amazing company. So I'm not comparing us that I'm just, I use Apple as the example because everyone's familiar with it. So when you're using a, when you're using a sort of analogy, it's, it's helpful to use something that's common knowledge, everybody. So uh, I want to make that clear. Um, and so, sorry, go, the, the question, but the, but the direct question was, oh, about, yes, is there ability to update hardware with software? Yes, we have the HyperSmart app, and that will, all of our products by the end of, probably by midway through next year, will all be Bluetooth. There are about half of them are now. Um, any new right. product comes out will be connected, and you'll be able to do it. And I would say Tesla is a very similar 
and it's, it's very similar, right? You know, the, the yep. biggest difference in the cars is, is the hardware is all there for everything. And it's just, it's the software that, you know, they're constantly hitting me on my, I have a Tesla. It's like, Hey, do you want to buy this upgrade for this? Or the, you know, the, the, the car summon for this, it's, it's a way for them to, um, you know, to, to put everything that's needed in the hardware and then basically give you the option to buy the, the, the software. You know, something we hear off, often from founders um, is kind of how their like the experience is like as a, as a founder, it's, it could be often lonely. It's like kind of obviously you have a lot of pressure on, on you um, from different places, whether it's investors or your employees or just yourself. Like there, there's just a lot of that. Um, and and obviously, like, you know, there could be situations where you can be burned out or up and down like in terms of your mood i don't know but for you i'm curious because you've mentioned like different interests that you have like you mentioned sports and, and things like that like what do you do to to keep yourself not just not just like sane and and, and not burn out but also inspired like what kind of things do you consume what do you spend your time doing outside of work things of that nature yeah i mean i have i live in laguna beach i have a five-year-old and a three-year-old i'm really really into my voice um i love spending every second I'm not working. I, I try to spend with them. So we're really fortunate. We live in a nice beach community. We take, you know, we, we go to the beach a lot. We have a basketball court that's near our house. Um, you know, teaching them like they're at the age now where they're just like kind of getting the dexterity to kind of like learn sports, like playing catch the football or doing that stuff. They're, you know, one's in Taekwondo, but the other one's about to start it. Then they both do swimming lessons. Um, you know, seeing them kind of become these like little people that are starting to move around a little bit more sophisticated. It's a fun time. Um, I think I took a big part of the job off my plate. I was sort of the kind of functioning creative director here and kind of took that off the plate this year um, to focus more on product development because we had a really steep climb with the product roadmap and given all the challenges in the supply chain, um, kind of diving more into products. Um I don't say I've ever get, I never got burned out really. I think there's definitely days where like over the past couple of years, there's, there, yeah, you have ups and downs like any other business. Sure. Um, but um, I try to, I, I play basketball at least once a week, try to play twice a week. Um, I have a regular game I attend um, that I kind of started with guys in the area that we all played and still continue to play. And um, that's, that's really enjoyable for me. Um, getting out, getting outdoors, getting in the water and, spending time with my kids so i'm trying to keep a good work-life balance because i think sort of the i don't want to fall into the whole thing of you know look I, i've done the late calls and being like there's there yeah there are days where like you know i get off the phone at 11 o'clock at night or whatever and it's like those are those days are they're not every night anymore they're way way less um and just trying to find a work-life balance because uh you know a burnout if you're if you're burnout you're not the best version of yourself so i, I think i definitely think um having a balance and doing things outside of work and having other things you like to do besides just your work is really important. I'll, I'll never be someone that just is completely consumed by it because it's just not healthy. Nancy, I'm curious, you know, you had mentioned Kobe early on being somebody that, you know, was a motivator, somebody that kind of pushed you to, um, you know, build yeah. that first product and really kind of make it better. Um, throughout the years when you were building uh, Hyperice, did you keep in touch with him and what did what did he think about, you know, what it became yeah. uh, in the last few years? <clears throat> so it was funny. So like I, um, you know, he was an early adopter, um, but didn't really have much relationship other than like, I'd see him at UC Irvine, give him product. Um, and then like, you know, I'd kind of hear from his assistant sometimes when he would need more. And um, 
you know, then I remember 2013 in, in April, he tears his Achilles. And this was, you know, I, and I would see him very sporadically, like just in passing, but didn't um, have much of a relationship at the time, other than like he had kind of helped me in the very in the beginning of like giving me like these very specific details about how, how he thought the product should be. And then 2013, he tears his Achilles and we did not make an Achilles icer and I just felt so bad. So I designed like a custom Achilles icer for him. And I gave it to Ryan, who's his friend, who was his trainer. And, um, you know, a couple weeks later, I got a call from Ryan saying, hey, Kobe wants to talk to you. He got the Achilles icer. He really likes it. But, you know, he, he wanted to talk to me. So I you know, remember it was my phone ringing and it was him. And this was like in, this was a couple weeks after he had his surgery. So this is probably like around, uh, you know, May of, um, of 2013. And he's like, I remember the first time I met you, you showed up with an ugly ass cardboard box with a bunch of, you know, your own home, your cut up products. And he goes, and he goes now, uh, he's like, I'm, I'm looking around the, the locker room and I see more guys using it. It's kind of getting out. He's like, he's like, that shows that, you know, you obviously, that t- I know that takes a lot of determination because I think he saw that I was not really very polished entrepreneur the first time. Um, and he goes, I'm really curious to know, like, you know, what you want to do with, he kept saying, what do you want to do with this company? And I was like, well, I have a lot of other ideas for other products. And I really think I want to, I want to be the Nike of recovery. And he's like, well, look, I got some downtime because like, I can't move. So why don't we meet? What are you doing tomorrow at nine o'clock? And obviously I'm going to say nothing. Um, and so we met at Pelican Hill where he yeah, I'm going to dinner with my wife. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I got to yeah, move along. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, sorry, wife. Kobe's calling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we met, um, we met for breakfast the next morning and honestly, I think we stayed from like 9am to 12 just talking about, we're like the same age. We had a lot of similar interest in film. Like I was the one to basically call out that his entire black mama thing was all stolen from kill bill volume two. Um, so we were both big Tarantino fans. We talked a lot about um, basketball and, and then got more into branding. And then he's like, well, what do you want to do with this? Like, he's like, um, and Kobe had not, look, he became known as a big, like active investor and, you know, storyteller. But this is at the time when he was just all basketball. And what the Achilles injury did for him was it got him first thing. He's like, I never even thought about retiring. I just, I wouldn't let, because that was, to him, it was a weakness to think about the end. And so he's like, when you had the Achilles, it like totally brought him down to like, whoa, okay. Like I think he knew in the back of his mind, he wasn't going to be the same. And that like, okay, there's, there's going to be life after basketball. And so I was just someone, we lived 10 minutes away from each other, maybe not even at the time. And, um, you know, I think Kobe was very curious to see like how someone got started and their backstory. And he was interested in actually being, you know, like he, at the time he owned part of an ad agency that he had me go see and, he just kind of like wanted to be involved with like kind of ideas and the creative and um, like never was officially like an investor in the company. Cause he, um, I think he invested in like body arm was like his first big investment, uh, which yeah. is like the next was the next year. But we, for like a lot of, in the summer of 2013, I would regularly see him. He would call me. He was notorious for like, you know, my phone ringing one in the morning. It'd be him. He's every idea that popped into his head. And, he was so such a forever student and like he would just call me. He's like, Hey, I'm using the ice. He's like, what's the material made out of? I'm like, it's made out of this. He's like, who made it? I'm like, Oh, this guy is formula. He's like, let's talk to him. So like, I'd have to like drop everything and call this guy. <laughs> like he was just, he was so, he had this crazy curiosity and thirst for knowledge. And 
we got to know each other really well in 2013. And then he came back to playing and his body was kind of the same. And like, I remember showing him the vibrate roller and like, you know, like throughout the years I would like, I'd see him and when he was playing, I'd see him more because I was going, I was going into the Lakers training facility a lot because we developed a product called the Raptor that we launched with Gary Vitti, the trainer of the Lakers. So I was like running into him and like, it was kind of like in a rhythm. I'd see him and we'd, we'd talk and, um, you know, he had kind of like at this time was sort of setting up his retirement. And then I remember after he retired, I didn't see him that much anymore because he was kind of out of the game and he was doing kind of his own thing. And I, and I, and I maybe ran into him once. And then I remember in 2019, the last time I saw him, we had come out with the Hypervolt Plus, which is a product that I was really involved in, in developing because I wanted to make a, a special product for the athletes. And so I'd given, he had, he owned a Hypervolt One, and this is the Plus, this is like the Pro version. And I went to his office, and he, and he was going to be there. And this was in August of, of 19. And I remember I opened it up. We made these special boxes for the first hundred. He was one of the, you know, he got out of his one of the first ones. And I said, Hey, you know, I just wanted you to have it. Cause you know, you're one of, you're on, obviously you're on my seating list for my first hundred. And he, and he looked, he opened and he looked and he goes, you know, I can't believe you got this far with that stupid name. He's talking about high price. <laughs> and I'm like, stupid. I go, the re- you know, why I named high price because the hyper dunk and like you were getting like, we were like collaborating on the first product. He goes, he goes, no, I, I was there. I know why you named it that. He goes, I just, think it's stupid he's like he's like he goes, <laughs> he goes he goes you make so many so much more than ice he goes you 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 left the door you closed the door you thought you were just going to be an ice company and i'm like well i didn't know that like you know i was going to come up with these all ideas at the time that's all it was and he's like well he's like you know i guess he goes i guess it worked so i guess i really can't say anything he goes but you should change he goes but you should still change the fucking name and he closed the box <laughs> and, and, and and um and I remember at the time, like, you know, I thought I'd see him more often because he was, he had an office nearby and, um, you know, he had mom Academy and we were sort of involved with that. And I thought that, you know, you know, you just never, ever think that, you know, he's not going to be there. And so I just, that was, uh, it really hit me. Like, you know, that was obviously just, again, one of those moments you'll always remember. But um, I remember when we did our MBA deal, we became the official recovery partner of the NBA in July of 2020, about you know seven or eight months after he passed. And I remember the news broke, and I remember my first text in the morning was Dave McMenamin because he was on the East Coast, the writer for ESPN. He goes, "Wow, official recovery partner of the NBA! Like that, there's never there's never been a recovery company that's had a, an official deal with the, a major sports league." Yeah. And so, um, and you know, and then you know, other people were like texting me about like that's a big move and. And the part of our ESPN, or sorry, part of our NBA deal is that there's a hypervolt on every chair and, and every on it when you know on every on every sideline. And it was funny that like the whole company was started because Kobe said, "If you make it good, I'll wear this on the bench." So I was just trying to get like one guy to wear one product, you know, like that was sort of the goal of what motivated me to start it. And then here we had come full circle where it's like now every game one of your products is on every player, and I remember that being like, whoa, like talk about like, you know, overshooting. Right. And, um, being bigger than you thought it was going to be. And, and I remember the only thing, like everyone was really excited that day that news broke, but the only thing for me was like that I like, that's when I really, it was like, damn, I wish, I wish he could have saw that. Cause that would have been pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's incredible. That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's like really insane, to kind of be in a place like where you were 
again, like having this vision of, of what you hoped it would look like. And it, 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 it seems like it's like way exceeded that maybe like you would even expect it or know that it was going to get to this point where it's on everyone's <laughs> chair. It's not just on one player's. So I think yeah, and, and I think multiple incredible. products too. Like I mean, our venom, uh, our venom heated wearables have like replaced the hydroxylator pads, and we're coming out the new version of that this year. And you know, now with the introducing Hyperice X, like the ten year anniversary, and there's just um, the innovation of what this space is compared to what it was. I you know with what Norma Tech did and what our team did the team now that's together and the products are coming out. Um, you know, we had this, we had this commercial that we did with the NBA called advance the game. And it was like, that's what we're trying to do is like, if the players hit the floor every night, they're not sore. Their bodies are prepped to move. They're properly recovered. They're properly warmed up. It's a better quality of play. It's longer careers. It's better careers. You look at the arc of a career is changing. Now you're starting to see like, I mean, maybe we could take LeBron out of it because he's such a physical freak, but you're seeing like even a guy like Chris Paul had his full resurgence in his career. You're seeing guys that they're they're not going up like this anymore. Like the, the the arc of a career is more. Uh, you're seeing guys play at a higher level late into their 30s, and now you're starting to see like it's not out of the ordinary for guys that are in their mid 30s to get you know two three year contracts for big money because the we have so much more knowledge and access to technology for the players to use on their bodies that um, look, we got a guy who just won his seven Super Bowl. And he's 40. He's my year in high school. He's 44 years old. That I don't think that would be possible um, before all this. It's just the, the body. He is the, the, he the, is the uh, goat. So yeah, yeah, he is. <laughs> but but I'm, I, I, a big, I, I'm a big Patriots fan. So you can't, well, it's like the one hat that you can't see up here. Yeah. Well, I, I, I go back to like, you know, when I was watching the Michael Jordan documentary, yeah. um, and you'd see Locked him like the night, the, the night before a big, yeah, the night before a big game, he's just like laying on his couch, like smoking a cigar, like that, like you know, now guys are plugged into a Norma Tech, they're you know, like like they're getting doing whatever they're doing. There's they're, they're getting yeah, Tom Brady's eating like fucking avocado ice cream. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's um. So I just feel like that there's just a, the level of technology and the, and the access of knowledge technology and all the resources now um it's making the game better and um to look i couldn't contribute to the world as a as an athlete in a big way but to think that like i'm part of something that like we're we're we're, we're introducing the game to better things and, and improving the game is uh you know you just hope that the work you do can contribute in some positive way and so um that's yeah i guess it's like the first a very, step towards a very like- high level yeah like anti-aging i mean that's basically what you're doing to a lot of these athletes is like they're just you know tom brady looks yeah. like he's like 25 right now well the, yeah the definition of aging one of them is the loss of movement over time right so it's like you yeah. see a snapshot of like a little kid that won't sit still and then you see a 90 year old and they can't move it's like that's like sort of a snapshot of how he aged. and so if you could keep the body moving completely freely without friction like that's the goal of anyone should have a frictionless body because if you have a frictionless body, you know, you're not, then, then everyone's, look, their strength and speed and stuff, that's all their gift. But uh, if you could keep a frictionless body, you could do the things you love to do for longer. So, yeah, that's what we're, we're trying to introduce this concept of, like, just like you have hygiene when it comes to, like, your, your oral hygiene. You brush, you floss, you use mouthwash, you, you get your teeth clean twice a year, whatever it is. Um, like, you do the same thing to your body and, like, you, you, you treat it every day and do it right by it every day. And then you combine that with, like, 
you know, this data rich environment we live in now with sleep tracking and diet and stuff, you could, you know, we, we could definitely slow, you know, we could, we could break the spell of aging. Anthony, just to wrap it up here, yeah. uh, you know, there's something that you said, I think it was right before we started the podcast, uh, which was that your story is very, very relatable. Uh, and it definitely is. And that doesn't downplay, I think the success and hard work and, you know, all that you had to put into this to make Hyperice what it's become, right? Uh, I do think that, and obviously you're a testament, a lot of others are testaments to this, that you don't necessarily have to have a business degree. You don't have to have parents that are entrepreneurs. You don't have to have you know family and friends that are massive investors. You don't even have to have a good idea sometimes. Sometimes it's just, you know, luck. Sometimes it's just one thing that worked for you, a little product, and then you just kind of build on that. I think the key, though, is just, number one, starting and not giving up, number two, right? Just continuing and making sure you better yourself, you better the products, you better those around you, and you constantly, like you said, are a forever student. And I think if you can just repeat that time and time again, chances of success increase. They're not guaranteed, but it's very likely that you will reach a point where, you know, you realize, okay, I'm onto something. And so I think that's where, you know, your story is super valuable to the everyday person that may have had a political science degree like me, like you. And now they're running a massive company that they never would have even dreamt of because it wasn't a part of their daily life. So thank you for, you know, your transparency and thank you for, you know, your uh, experience. Yeah. and And I will say that like, I definitely, you know, I definitely did not overcome a ton of hardship that other people have. Like I grew up in, like I grew up in a middle-class family and that probably meant something different in the 1980s and 90s. But, um, you know, my dad was an engineer. My mom stayed home and raised us. And um, I went to, I'm a product of the California public school system, which was awesome back then. And, (laughs) um, and like, I really do feel that like I'm a product of my environment and, had a family that was supportive. Um, but really, honestly, I, I feel like, you know, high price is really built by a network of people that I sort of curated over time before I got into business and then, and then, and then, and then after and during, but I kind of feel that there's really like one thing I try to teach my kids above all is like, just sounds so corny, but just like, just like basic kindness, I think goes a long way. Um, you know, and just the way you treat people and it just allows you to put better people around you. And I think that's one thing that I think gets lost. And so much people think about like, Oh, was he a great innovator? Was he a great this? Or that's like, sometimes you'd be surprised how far just like basic kindness goes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you say that. Well, it's not funny, but it is funny. Uh, because the one question Pat and I get asked a lot, almost like every day, um, is, you know, what's the common thread between, like the founders that were most successful. And, you know, I think our answer is pretty much always the same, which is like, they're always the nicest and most generous (laughs) with their time, their energy. Mm. And again, there could be an argument of, well, are they that way because they are successful now? Or were they always that way? And it's a toss up. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there's some influences of, you know, both, but I think for the most part, the most successful people that we've talked to, and we've talked to a lot at this point, are just genuinely kind, like just that's it, period, end of story. And everything else you can learn along the way, you know, and you'll figure it out. 
Yeah, there was actually, I think, a, a documentary on Mr. Rogers I watched on the plane, and that was sort of like <laughs> the basic thing of it. it. Was like this, it's like the lost art of kindness, you know? Yeah. Um, like sometimes that's just, I don't know, you know, it, it's it's a, it's a trait that like I think, you know, people think that oh, the most successful people, what do they share? Like, yeah, I agree. I think that, um, yeah, most the ones I meet like have a certain. You can have an IQ them. of. Yeah, you can have an IQ of a million and do great things, but if you're a fucking asshole, like who cares? Yeah, like you yeah. know what I mean? Just like whatever. <laughs> it, it's it's always funny because uh, I like I, I'm a fan of Seth MacFarlane and, and I still watch Family yep. Guy and and uh, it's the whole thing. He has this like bone to pick with Thomas Edison where he's always portraying to be an asshole, and uh, <laughs> there's always these like kind of flashbacks to Edison being an asshole and like even though he was this great inventor and. Apparently he read that he was an asshole, so I don't know. Maybe he was, but um. I, I I will say on the note of kindness, both Pat and I went to USC, and I'm sure Clay Helton was a super kind guy. But there's times that you just got to cut the kind guy, right? Yeah. Like you, you can't just be kind and not do your job. Yeah. So be kind and do your job is yeah. is the moral <laughs> of the story. But but the basis is be kind, yeah. and that's you can't, but you can't just stop there. Yeah, and um, and, and job and jobs is kind of an asshole. Yeah. And, yeah. and so is and and actually bill gates has probably done the biggest transformation yeah. of being an asshole and then being like completely different um yeah i always ask every i tell everyone like if there's one thing they should watch there's this the one time that jobs and gates were in the same conversation in an interview was at that tech summit where like the husband yep. and wife yep. i think interview them and i've watched that so many times and like I, I love watching that. So it's, it's like basically you're seeing like the two guys that shape the world that we live in probably more than anybody. And yeah, um, it's a great one. Pr- pretty, it's so awesome. And when, uh, last thing I'll say, when, when the, the best part of it to me is like the last question they say, um, what's one thing you admire about the other? And they go, Bill will ask you first about Steve. And he goes, why well, does think Steve has incredible taste? He's like, you know, his, <laughs> his, his taste for design and, he has such an eye for things and it's just as a software guy, I just don't have that and his ability to like see things. And, you know, and he says that and, and then, but jobs, you know, says, he goes, what I admire about Bill is that he built the biggest company in the world. And then he realized he didn't really care about being the richest guy in the graveyard. And that's such a great line. Like, because then Gates left and then dedicated his life. He quit Microsoft at its peak and then left and went and dedicated his life to philanthropy. And, you know, solving like sewage problems in Africa and water and like stuff that like, you know, other people and became that, even uh, richer. Yeah. Yeah. Other, yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying other people that had that money would probably be like on a yacht with models or whatever. And yeah. this guy's like digging holes in the dirt in third world. Shout out but, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> I think that like, but he said, what I admire about Steve is he doesn't care about being the richest guy in the graveyard. And that was a great line. I, yeah. I, I always remember that one. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for your time um, and sharing your experiences and story with us. And I'm looking at my Hypervolt right there. It's on my wine fridge, which nice. is the perfect place because you can have some wine chill and then you, you know, Great. recover. Um, but you built, we, Pat and I have been following Hypervolt for so many years now. So we're so glad to have made this happen. And uh, we can't wait to see how you continue to grow the company and, uh, you know, create incredible products that actually matter and that actually improve the lives of just everyday people. So, well, I, pre- I appreciate the kind words guys. It was nice. Um, nice for you having me on and, uh, and keep in touch. Thanks. Thanks.